Well, this past January, probably now about six weeks ago, uh, a man named Phil was snowmobiling in uh, about 130 kilometers south of Winnipeg. And um, this was the area that he usually spent his time in, snowmobiling, traveling around that area in the middle of nowhere. And what happened was, as he was snowmobiling around, he saw some tire tracks. And he thought, this is really odd to see tire tracks way out here in the middle of nowhere, and especially in the dead of winter. And so he thought, he was curious about that, so he thought, well, I'll follow these tracks. Well, he followed the tracks for about 15 or 16 kilometers or so, and at the end of these tracks, he found the vehicle. As he approached the vehicle, looked in it, what he found was um, an elderly gentleman, a grandfather, huddled up in blankets, and two of his grandchildren huddle up in blankets as well. As he talked with them, the parents of these children were not there. They had left to go get help. And the scenario all around this was that this family was traveling to Toronto and were using their cell phones as navigation devices, obviously taking a couple of wrong turns and found themselves stuck in the middle of nowhere, middle of January. At that point, it was 15 below, And um, so Phil thought, I better hop on my snowmobile and go find the the parents. So he hopped on his snowmobile, uh, found the mom and the dad, and they they were just about done in. They could not walk anymore. They were trying to look for help, only wearing some running shoes on their feet. And so he, he rescued them, got them on his snowmobile, put his jacket on them, tried to get them warm, and he took them to a warming shelter that snowmobilers use this time of year when they're out snowmobiling. He got them warm and settled, and then he went back, got the grandpa, got the two kids, put them in the snowmobile, took them to the warming shelter as well. When everybody was safe out of danger's way, he sent out an SOS to the RCMP. The RCMP came, took over the whole situation, and everybody was okay. But here's the obvious question. I mean, how did they get so off track? How did they end up here? How did they end up there? Now, I hope, and I certainly think, none of us in this room would ever find ourselves in that same kind of situation. However, we've all asked the same question. How did we get so off track? How did we find ourselves here? Perhaps it's when you lied about something. And after you lied, you just thought, how in the world did I get to the place that I would lie about that? How did I get here? Perhaps it's gossip. Thinking, how in the world did I get here that those words, hurtful words, came out of my mouth at that time? How did I end up in this emotional affair? How did I end up stealing? How did I end up cheating? How did I end up being angry so often? I was not like this, but how did I end up here right now with just so much anger in me? How did I end up being filled with envy or jealousy? How did I end up here? How did I get so off track? We've all asked that question. We can all identify with feelings of regret or sorrow. See, the past four weeks, We've been examining how and when and where and in what ways Satan tempts us. We've been learning from the account of Jesus in the wilderness in Matthew chapter 4 and looking at how uh, Jesus was tested by God but tempted by Satan. 
And so if you have your Bibles with you, turn to Matthew chapter 4. Just hold your hand in that spot because we'll come back there again and again throughout our time together. Matthew chapter 4. Before we get to Matthew chapter 4, 1 John 3 verse 8 says this. says this. The devil has been sinning from the beginning. This is who Satan is. Satan has been sinning from the beginning. From From the beginning of his fall from heaven... He has been acting against God, contrary to the purposes, the agenda, the plans of God. This is who Satan is. In fact, the Bible says elsewhere that he he has come to steal, kill, and destroy. He's come to steal your joy. He's come to destroy your life, destroy your marriage, destroy your relationships, destroy you. He's come to kill you. He's come to lead you to death. His agenda is stealing, killing, and destroying. That's what he is about. But the next part of this verse is just awesome. The reason the Son of God, the reason that Jesus Christ appeared was to destroy the devil's work. How awesome is that? He has come to destroy the devil's work. And in Matthew chapter 4, in all the verses we have been looking about, we begin to see the evidence, the proof that Satan is no match for Jesus. Satan's best efforts to tempt Jesus the first 11 verses of Matthew chapter 4 didn't work out. Satan was defeated. Jesus walked out of the the wilderness. Uh, He walked out of the place where there were wild animals, Mark tells us. He walks out of the wilderness. After 40 days of not eating, he walks out victorious, defeating Satan. Defeating Satan. He was beginning at the outset to destroy the works, the strategies, the plans, the agenda, the purposes, the schemes of Satan. So the question for us is then, how do we walk in victory as human beings? How do we walk in victory over sin? How do we resist temptation? How do we not give in to sin? What's the path for us to walk in? What's the way for us to live? How do we win more and more and more in our lives over sin and less and less and less find ourselves asking the question, so how do we get off track? How did we end up here in our lives, in the situation we're in? Well, I want to suggest to you this morning that to walk in victory over sin, the path for us to walk in, the way for us to live is a path, is a way of repentance. The way of repentance. See, if you look One chapter earlier in Matthew chapter 3, John the Baptist, we talked about him, I don't know how many weeks ago. His message was repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. That's what John was preaching, teaching. A few verses later in Matthew chapter 4 verse 17, we read this. That from that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Mark chapter 1, verse 15, Jesus says, The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. You see, the first words out of Jesus' mouth as he began his teaching and healing ministry, the first words out of his mouth was, Repent. Repent. Now, how many of us in this room like the word repent? Any hands? I thought five hands go up. <laughs> You know, the rest of us, it's just, this word is just not a word that we like. 
it's, it's not a word that inspires us. It's not a word that gives us hope. It's not a word that we like. And I think it's because in our minds, when we think of this word repent, we think of some angry teacher, preacher, someone who's judging, someone who's not such a nice, lo- a loving person, a nice person, and them yelling, you know, repent. Which is just wrong. That's just wrong. See, if we pause for a moment, do we really believe that Jesus' tone and his posture in saying, repent, the kingdom of heaven is near, is angry or judging or condemning? From all that we know about Jesus, all that we know about God, would that be his tone? Maybe towards the Pharisees and the Sadducees that we see in Scripture, perhaps to them, but far more often, Jesus' tone likely would have been gentle, would have been kind, would have been inviting. You see, instead, this word repent, and I hope that this word just changes for you over the next few minutes. This word repent instead is an incredibly loving invitation from Jesus to draw near to him, to receive forgiveness from him, to return to him. See, there's no greater act of love from God shown in Jesus Christ than for Jesus to invite us to repent, to turn back. Martin Luther has this great line that I think is so true. He says this, that when our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ, when our Lord and Master said repent, he said that the whole life of the Christian, all of life of the Christian, everything that we're about as a Christian should be one of repentance. One of repentance. You see, repentance, it feels unnatural at times, but it shouldn't feel unnatural to us. It shouldn't feel foreign to us. It shouldn't feel irregular to us. It shouldn't feel abnormal to us to repent, to turn back to God. Instead, it should be natural. It should be something that's just constant for us, that we regularly, regularly and often turn our hearts, turn our minds, turn our affections Turn back to God and draw near to him. See, this call from Jesus to repent is a call for a transformative inward change towards God. Repentance is a profound big word, but simply means a change, an internal change in our heart, in our mind, in our feelings, in our behavior, in our understanding back to God. It's a reversal, of course. It means we were headed in this direction for a while, and then we've stopped, and we've turned around, and now we're walking in this direction. It's a change, of course. It's a change of mind. It's a change of our thoughts. It's a change of our perceptions. It's a change of our purpose, a change of our plans, a change, a turning around, and turning around back to God. Because Satan wants to turn you away from God. He wants to turn you and I away from God. Satan, like we've already talked about in in these last four weeks, Satan is a very real spiritual being who is bent on doing evil. C.S. Lewis has a nickname for him, calls him the bent one. The bent one. You see, Satan has twisted everything. He's twisted the truth. He's twisted our emotions. He's twisted our desires. He's twisted... Pretty much everything in the world, he's twisted it, bent it completely out of shape. Satan is 
commander over evil spiritual beings and their one intention is to get you and I to do evil, to sin, to give in to sin and to turn us away from God. That's what he wants. But Jesus wants us to turn back to God. Back to God. See, sometimes maybe we feel as repentance isn't such a a loving word that makes us feel comfortable because maybe we feel like when we are repenting, when we're turning around, that indicates our failure. And, and I just want to say, repentance is not a failure. Repentance is the good thing to do. Repentance is the right thing to do. Sin is our failure, right? Sin is when we don't, we don't obey God. Sin is our failure, and we don't need to feel regret when we repent. It's when we sin and the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin, and then we, we realize and we say, oh, why am I here again? Why have I done this? That's the gentle work of, of conviction by the Holy Spirit. And if you don't hear anything else this morning, which I hope you hear a few more things, but if you don't hear anything else, just hear this. It's God's kindness, the Bible says, that moves us to repentance. It's the goodness of God that moves us to repentance. It's his kindness that moves us, yes. Not God's judgment. The Holy Spirit convicts us of sin in the moment. But rather than thinking in that moment when we ought to turn back, rather than thinking in that moment, God hates me, God must reject me, God must not feel loving towards me, God might be disappointed with me, God wasn't, doesn't want to do anything with me. Instead of thinking that at that moment instead, what God is really thinking is, Allow my kindness to draw you back to me. You see, and it's the Holy Spirit that speaks to our hearts and says, God is good. God is kind. Come back. Return back. Change your mind. Change your thinking. Change your behavior. Turn. Turn from sin. Come back. Jesus' invitation to us, repent, reveals that God is kind. Even in the middle of our sin. He loves us. See, in the path to victory, the way to walk in victory over sin is to turn away from sin, change our mind, change our thoughts, change our beliefs, change our attitudes, change everything. Change and return back to God and asking God with his help and the help of the Holy Spirit not to go that way again. Not to go that way again. See, so what does repentance look like? I want us to talk about this for the rest of our time. And repentance, there's four things that I want to talk to you about repentance. First of all, repentance requires that we resist evil. Requires that we resist evil. The word resist means to stand in opposition against, to stand against. And the idea here is that we stand with God against evil, against sin, against evil externally around us. The forces of Satan and his schemes external from us, but also the evil that's in our hearts. The evil intent, the evil desires that we don't like, but oftentimes emerge from within us. We stand against those desires in our hearts. James 4 verse 7 says, Submit yourselves then to God. Surrender yourselves to God. Submit yourself to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. The word that James here is, is really uh, gives the image of a company, a squadron of soldiers 
standing against, in opposition against the enemy's forces, standing together, resisting, standing together, not giving in ground. In fact, standing together and gaining ground, and and that's the image here. And when we resist the devil, he will flee from us. 2 Timothy 2, verse 2, says as well that we ought to flee the devil. That there's times and places in our lives that we know if we are in this situation, we will be tempted and we need to flee from that situation. Might be you sitting in front of the computer thinking, I'm just fine. I'm all alone. I can resist looking at pornography. And and if you're in that situation, you need to flee from that. In fact, don't even go there. Might be fleeing from another situation, another person, another influence someplace. But our, our job as well is to flee from those situations. You see, this word resist is the same word that Paul uses in Ephesians 6, verse 13, where he says, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil, the day of temptation comes, you may be able to stand your ground. Stand your ground. That's the same word as resist. Stand your ground. And after you've done everything, to stand. It's the same word that Peter uses in 1 Peter 5, 8. When he says, be self-controlled and alert. Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him. Resist. Stand against him. Stand firm in your faith. Stand firm in what you believe to be true about God and what you believe to be true about yourself. Who God says that you are. Stand firm in your faith and your belief. You see, following Jesus means that we need to stand against some things. We need to resist temptation. We have to say no to some things. We have to say no to some things and then say yes to God in other areas of our life. Saying no always means to say yes to God. If you're saying no to something, always replace it with what you're going to say yes to God for. A friend of mine, a couple of years ago now, probably, um, a friend of mine had a major mouse situation in his house. I should say mice situation because there were many of them. And uh, he had a mouse problem, mice problem. And the way that this happened was that he had his, uh, he plays hockey. And so he had his hockey equipment that he just left in his garage. And for some reason or another, maybe one mouse, I don't know, maybe two, got into that hockey bag and set up shop in the hockey bag. And he obviously didn't know this because one day he just looked at his hockey equipment and said, what is my hockey equipment doing here? I should take my hockey equipment and take it into my basement. And so that's what he did. And like mice do, they just make more mice. (laughs) They just multiply. And when you know it, he ended up, they ended up having mice all over their house. Through this period of time, he was telling me, Ken, I caught caught mice with this trap and then he'd buy other traps that I had no idea existed and he'd catch multiple mice a day and then he expanded his attack and he's, he came up with buckets and water and peanut butter and other things just to catch all of these mice and finally I believe he ended up calling the exterminator to just deal with this whole issue of mice Now, I think there's some of you in here right now that are thinking, I just moved a box or a bag from my garage into the basement. (laughs) And (laughs) 
There's some anxiety in the room. You're free. If you're concerned about that, you can leave. You got permission to leave. Go check that out if you want. <clears throat> but here's my point with all of this. Here's my point. If we have a sin problem, we just have to deal with it. If we have a sin problem, we just have to deal with it. We just have to face it. We just have to acknowledge it and, and deal with it. Because if we, if we leave our sin alone in our lives, it will grow. It will multiply. It will expand. It will become something that you never had in mind that it could possibly become. Because that's what sin does. Remember, Satan comes to steal, kill, and destroy. We have to deal with it. You see, our sin will get out of control if we don't address it. It will distance us from God. It will, it will wreck our relationships with others. It will impact our life. It'll make us miserable. Because we were never meant to live in sin. And so when we stumble, if and when we do sin, we just have to deal with it. And the way to resist sin is to repent. The way to resist sin right away is change. Turn around. Change our heart. Change our mind. Change our, our affections of our heart. Change our belief about God. Change. Turn around and come back to God. And then stand and resist. And if you've missed some of the, the previous messages here, the last three or four weeks, I, I just want to encourage you, go back and listen to them. Because in every single week, we get very practical about the temptations that Jesus experienced and how he resisted Satan, how he stood against Satan, how he, he stood his ground. And so go back and listen to those because you'll, you'll just get some very practical tools on how to stand against, against Satan. So go back and listen to them. And as well, men in the room, in the back of the program that you received as you came in, in the back, there's a little box that talks about a men's event that we have coming up March 21st. Men, we've got enough advance. Let's be there. I'll be there along with some of our other staff, along with some of our other leaders. And this is an event for men. Just how do we be godly men in today's day and age? How do we stand against the temptation that comes at us? And certainly we're going to be talking just a bit about pornography and living pure lives with our thoughts and our actions. But as well, a significant amount of the day is going to be spent on so how do we as dads disciple our young or young sons. For grandparents, how do you disciple your grandsons? For men, how do we walk with one another in purity? This is just so critical. So go to our website, sign up. Men, let's be there. Um, they'll just give us practical tools on, on how we resist evil, right? How we resist evil. Okay, second. Second, repentance restores to your mind what is true about God. Restores to your mind what is true about God because likely when we sin, we've believed something that's not true about God. We've believed a lie about God. And so repentance turns us back to God and helps us to think, okay, now what do I know about God that is true? You see, one of Satan's strategies is to suggest ideas to our heart, ideas to our mind, to suggest ideas to our heart and our mind that contradict God's word, God's word in the Bible, 
to suggest ideas to our heart and our mind that contradict God's character and to just destroy the trust relationship that we have with God. Satan wants to destroy the truth about God. That's what he wants to do all the time. He wants to convince us that this word in here is not true. That's one of his critical agendas. He wants to make us believe lies about God. He wants to confuse about us about who God is. He just wants to turn us away from God. He wants us to destroy our grasp on truth. He wants to affect the beliefs of our heart and our mind. You see, when the Bible talks about heart in the Bible, it's not just our emotions, but the heart is all of the place of our thinking, of our feeling, of our doing comes out of our heart. That's what the Bible teaches. The heart is the source of our base commitments, the base trust that we have, the base belief that we have. From our hearts flow our, our thinking and our feeling and our actions. What our hearts trust in, our minds then believe, and our emotions desire and feel, and then our, our will carries out in terms of actions. We are thinking, feeling, acting people. And so what we think, what we believe, what we perceive, what we know to be true about God is critical. And every, pretty much every temptation and every sin is structured and organized around a lie about God. Everything Satan does and makes us think insinuates or openly denies the promise and revelation of God. Satan's goal is to keep you from knowing God from knowing God, from trusting in God, from growing to know God intimately, from growing in your relationship with him. That's his goal. If he can keep us from knowing the truth about God, we're in trouble. If he can get us to believe a lie about God, we're in trouble. See, Matthew chapter four, if we just look at there, the first 11 verses, all recount Satan tempting Jesus in the wilderness. And what Satan was trying to do is to get Jesus to believe a lie about his God, to not believe in the truth about God. You see, Satan, first of all, tempts Jesus and says, turn the stone into bread. The temptation here was for Jesus to satisfy his own desires by providing for his own needs. And what Jesus says there is, no, I know who God is. God is my provider. I will trust in him. I will believe in him. He is my provider. I will not act on my own to provide for myself. That was the lie that Satan wanted Jesus to believe that God was not his provider. The second, right, Jesus was tempted to make something great of himself, make a spectacle of himself, make himself spectacular by, by forcing God's hand to rescue him. The temptation was Satan came to Jesus and said, Jesus, fall off this high place and surely God will rescue you. Jesus says, no, God is trustworthy and God is faithful. That's who he is. And I will trust him to act in my best interest. I'm not going to look out for my interest to make myself famous or spectacular. I will trust in God because he is faithful and he is trustworthy and he is dependable to look out for my interests. I'm not going to make something happen here. I'm not going to test God. See, the third temptation Satan came was to offer Jesus power and prestige. I mean, the, the temptation was Satan said, I'll give you everything, everything you see if you'll bow down and worship me. And at that point, 
Jesus had just had enough of Satan. He says, get away from me, Satan. Because the truth there, the truth that Jesus affirms then, is there is only one person worthy of worship. And that's God. It's not you, Satan. You see, Satan was trying to say, God's not worthy of our ultimate worship and our allegiance and our commitment. And Jesus says, no, God is the only one. You see, Jesus knew his father. He knew what was true about his father, what was right about his father, what was consistent about his father. He believed him and knew him. You see, when we sin, when we fall into sin, when we give into sin, likely, likely we're not believing truth about God. We're believing a twisted lie, an altered view, a version of God. We forget about God. He's out of the picture for us at that moment. See, here's how this plays out. The truth about God, right? We believe this. The truth about God is that he is loving and he is caring, right? He's loving and caring. But when we believe that maybe God isn't loving and caring, that he's hateful or that he's unconcerned about us, then we take matters into our own hands and we care for ourselves. See, that's the wrong view of God. The truth about God is that he is good and merciful. And likely when we give in to sin, then we believed that God is mean and unforgiving. That's not who God is. He's good and merciful. The truth about God is that he is the giver of unconditional, unconditional grace and love. But when we give in to sin, perhaps we've believed that God's love is conditional towards us. And we try to seek out love elsewhere. The truth about God is that he is present and he's available all the time, 24-7. But when we give in to sin, perhaps we've believed that God is absent. That he doesn't see us. That he doesn't notice us. The truth about God is that he's the giver of good gifts. But sometimes we believe that God is a killjoy. And if we believe that God is a killjoy, then we will try and find our joy and our happiness and our pleasure elsewhere. But that's not who God is. The truth about God is that he's accepting of us. And when we sin, perhaps, it is that we believe the lie that he is, rejects us. And at that point then, what we want to do is we want to find the approval and the acceptance that we desire, not in him, but in others, in other situations, in other circumstances. You see, you see what we believe about God is so critical to every single aspect of our lives. So critical. And the way to walk in victory over sin really is to remind ourselves the truth about who God is. That what we know and think and feel about God then will affect our feelings and will affect our will and will affect our actions. You see, because how you spend your time, how you spend your time in part reveals what you believe about God. How you and I steward our finances and what we have, our possessions, reveals in part what we believe about God. Simple things about how you parent your children in part reveals what you believe about God. How you love your spouse reveals in part what you believe about God. What you believe about the social issues in our day today reveals what you believe about God. You see, all of our life, all of our life is traced back to what we truly do believe 
about God and what's true of him. What we believe about God is so critical. And Paul prays this. In Ephesians 1 verse 17, he prays this for the, the church in Ephesus. And this is such a great prayer for us to pray. Paul prays this, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. The prayer here is that we would have full knowledge, right knowledge of God, and that we would be given a spirit of wisdom and revelation. The Holy Spirit would guide us to wisdom and revelation of truly who God is, full knowledge about God. And it's almost like Paul is saying, I'm going to pray this for you because I know that Satan is directly going to come and attack and distort and pervert your view of God, your knowledge of God, your right knowing of who God is. And so Paul prays for them that they would truly know who God is. That's the second thing. The third is this. Third is repentance also restores the truth of who you are. See, repentance, when we turn back to God, that's when we then believe again the truth about God. When we turn back to God as well in repentance, we, we believe again the truth about who God says that we are. See, Matthew chapter 4 begins with the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness, but his temptation can't be separated from how chapter 3 ends in Jesus' baptism. Jesus' baptism and his testing and being tempted in the desert just go hand in hand together. It's just, it's just one story there. Through Jesus' baptism, he was commissioned by God for his teaching healing ministry. His father spoke love and affirmation and confirmed Jesus' identity at his baptism. We see the Holy Spirit descending on Jesus. Matthew 3, verse 16 says this, that at that moment, Right after Jesus' baptism, heaven was opened and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him, resting on Jesus. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love. This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. So I have a question for you. What was, what was Jesus' identity? What was his identity? Well, right here, he's the son of God. Yes, he's the son of God. Additionally, he's the son of Mary, right? He's Mary's son. That's also his identity. He was a Nazarene. We see that earlier in uh, Matthew chapter 3. He was, he was from the town of Nazareth. That was, his, that was his lineage. That was his heritage. He was a Nazarene. That was part of his identity. He was a man. That was part of his identity. He was a man. He was a teacher. That was part of his identity. He had an occupation. He was a builder. That was part of his identity as well. Jesus had multiple identities, multiple words, phrases, labels that formed his identity as a person. But here's the thing about Jesus. Above all of these competing identities, one rose to the top. One rose in priority over all of the rest. And that one identifying label was that he was the son of God. And that shaped everything that he did. Everything that he did. He was a son of God. Who defines you? 
How do you define yourself? What words or phrases have you attached, believed in your life that give you a definition of a person that you are? Defining characteristics, attributes, factors. Who defines you? Who says that you are? About a year ago, 10 months ago now, I had a conversation with a young man here at our central campus. And in this conversation, I, I just did mostly listening. Just listened to him share his story. His story was about him growing up, um, knowing about God from an early age. At a certain point in his life, he surrendered his, his life to Jesus Christ, receiving Jesus as his Lord and Savior, committed his life to following Jesus. Um, his story contained just some struggles in his growing up years, in his high school years, and um, a story included going to university, and um, the story included the job that he loved, that he, he really found joy and contentment in his job. He shared about his close friends, the community that he had around him, that prayed with him, talked with him, studied God's word with him. He was in a great community. He talked about his devotion and love for Jesus Christ. As well, he talked about his attraction to men. He talked about his same-sex attraction. And how this had caused some struggle in his identity and his relationships. As his story continued, he talked about how he shared this part of himself with his parents and another close group of friends that he trusted. His story included how they loved him, how they, they wanted to understand him better, how they cared for him. And at this point, then, he came and just wrapped everything up and he said, Kent, you know what? I've discovered that my sexuality is not the thing that defines who I am. It doesn't ultimately define me. Certainly it's this aspect of my life, but it's not the biggest area in my life. It's not the largest area in my life. It's not the most prominent area in my life. The most prominent area in my life, what he said that, that defined truly who he was, who he is, is his love for Jesus, his desire to stay faithful to Jesus and follow Jesus according to the teaching of Scripture. The defining factor in his life is that Jesus loves him, Jesus saved him, Jesus redeemed him. And the priority identifying factor label in his life was that he was a child of God, a son of God. And that was his story. You see, folks, we all have competing identities. Competing identities. Labels, phrases, words that just compete for one another about what will be the priority for us. The overarching identity of who we live and how we live. Who we are and how we live. For some folks, really their vocation has become their ultimate identity. That they don't take a day off from work, they just work all the time. And for these folks, if you'd say, well, are you a workaholic? You know, immediately they'd say, no, I'm not a workaholic. I just work every day of the week. <laughs> you know, um, but don't take a Sabbath. And their identity has become their vocation. Their identity is wrapped up in that. For others, it's their reputation. That's their core of their identity, preserving their reputation to look a certain way. For others, it could be their marital status. For others, their identity could be wrapped up in having children or not having children. For others, their sexuality is their, 
the prior, their, their, their first and foremost identity for them. But above all of these things, God's word says, says this in 1 John. What great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God. That we should be called the children of God. And that is who we are. And that is who we are. That is who we are, church. That's who we are. See, here's some truths about who you are, who I am. As we follow Jesus Christ, you are a member of Christ's body. You are a saint. You're a saint. How awesome is that? That's true about you. You are a saint. You have direct access to God. Direct access to God. That is true about you. If you're in here this morning and you feel condemned, the truth about you is you are freed from condemnation. You're freed from condemnation. What's true about you is you cannot be separated. It is is absolutely impossible for you to be separated from God's love. That's an impossibility. That's true about you. What's true about you as well is you have been given the spirit of power and love and sound mind. What's true about you is you are God's workmanship. God is up to something good in your life. That's true about you. What's true about you is you can do all things through him who gives you strength. This is what it's true about us, about you, about me. These things I've just listed off here are the priority. The first and foremost identifiers of who we are as human beings, as people. And all other identifiers pale in comparison to what the Bible, to what God says is true about us. You see, when we don't believe the truth about who we are, that's the point then, then we succumb to temptation, we give in to sin, and we truly then act in ways that we don't want to act. Which is why we ask the question, how did I end up here? How did I end up here? How did I get off track? Simply the fact that we ask that question shows that the Holy Spirit is saying, this is not you. This is not who you are. You're acting in another version of yourself. Your identity is fragmented. It's, it's in chaos. You don't know who you are, which is why you're acting in these ways. And repentance calls us. It's the invitation from Jesus calls us, turn back to God. Change your heart. Change your believing. Change your understanding. Change your feeling. Change your acting. Return back to God to know who it is that he says that you are. That's the path to repentance. That's the path for us to walk in victory is realize who we are. It's through confessing our sin. And like I already said, because of God's kindness to us. Because God is so kind that he invites us to turn back to him. Repentance is the path to turning back toward God, reminding ourselves, restoring to our minds the truth about who we are, what God's word says that we are. And then our part, our part, is to believe and to walk in these Walk in who we are. Live out of who we are. Make these our identities grounded and firmly established in, in what God says so that we live according to who we are and who we want to be.
See, last then, repentance humbles us to embrace grace, to embrace grace. See, part of why I feel like we don't, we have this awkwardness with repentance is because of our pride. Because of our pride. None of us really likes to be found out that we've done wrong, do we? We just don't like that. And our pride keeps us from turning around, turning back to God. And I think if we would realize that it's God's kindness and his Holy Spirit that moves us, that turns us around, that we would see that God is so pleased with our humility. Right? The Bible says that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. It's when we humble ourselves and turn around, turn back to God, that then we receive grace. Grace won't come to us in our pride, in our ego, in our self-righteousness. No, not at all. See, repentance is a humble path to receive God's grace, God's unmerited favor towards us, to receive God's grace. In Matthew 4, verse 17, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. These words are an invitation into grace. They're an invitation into forgiveness. James 4, verse 8 says this, draw near to God. That's repentance. Turning around, drawing near to God. Draw near to God, and look at this. He will draw near to you. Don't we want God to draw near to us? Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. That's the path of victory. Find our way back to God, drawing near to him, and he will draw near to us. Repentance is an invitation to turn back to God, to turn to him, to resist the things that draw us away from him. See, if, though, if and when we have sinned, we don't want to really walk this humble path back to God. We don't want to walk this journey of grace back to God. Sometimes it's because we feel that, I mean, how many of you, after you've messed up, you feel like the first thing I want to do is crack open the Bible and read God's word? (laughs) Sometimes we just don't feel that way. Sometimes we don't feel like talking to God. Sometimes we don't feel like praying. Sometimes you might feel like not coming to church. Sometimes you might feel like not going to your missional community group and being with others because you just feel, you don't feel good about yourself. And that's what keeps us from, from repentance, from turning back to God. If you feel like that, I would just say, the path back to God is filled with grace. Just filled with grace. God's mercy, his kindness, his goodness towards you, his forgiveness that's just waiting there. He's waiting just to make you brand new, make you clean, make you righteous in him because of what Jesus has done. For others of us, when we've messed up, when we sin, sometimes we just feel like, you know what? I'm going to read through the whole New Testament in one week. And, <clears throat> right? And, and that will somehow maybe appease our conscience. That's what we're trying to do. We're trying to appease our conscience. We can't appease our conscience. It's God. It's God that cleanses us and from our conscience and restores things that are true about us. So when we sin, it's not to be distant from God, not at all. It's not to work harder to make God us love us, God love us. When we've sinned, if we sin, it's just simply to make your first move. 
if you sin, when you sin, make your first move a turnaround. Just immediately say, I'm turning back to you, God. I'm turning back to you, God. Thank you. You confess your sin. God, I did this. I messed up. Please forgive me. Receive his forgiveness. Welcome his grace, his love and affection for you. And then, and then say, now what was the lie that I believed about God? How did I get here? What was the lie that I believed about myself? How did I get here? And then stand and resist temptation. You see, here's the thing. God connects with us. God draws near to us, not on the basis of what we've done that's good or what we've done that's wrong. God doesn't connect us on to us on the basis of what we've done or what we haven't done. God draws near to us. God connects with us on the basis of what Jesus Christ has done in history for you, for me. Jesus makes it possible for us to walk in victory, to walk in the way of repentance. And I am so grateful. Aren't we so grateful that Jesus lived a perfect life? That he resisted Satan here in Matthew chapter 4? We're so grateful that he resisted Satan, tempting him into sin. We're so grateful that all throughout Jesus' life, we see Jesus resisting uh, Satan's temptation. In the garden, he resisted Satan's temptation, saying, take another way out. Even as he hung on the cross, as people were saying, if you are the son of God, come down from there. That was Satan calling out and saying, Jesus, come down. Don't go God's way. Even then he resisted temptation. Aren't we so grateful that he resisted temptation? Because here's why. His perfect life lived. Redeemed all of us. Covers all of our sin. So that is God's kindness shown towards us. His perfect life. You see, if Jesus had sinned, he would have to die. He would have to die. The wages of sin is death. If Jesus had sinned, he would have to die. But because he lived a perfect life, because he was sinless, therefore his death was for all of us. For all of us. So that we could come back to God. See, even though we sin, Jesus' death, his death wins our victory. Do you hear that? Jesus' death wins our victory. We walk on the basis of what Jesus Christ has done for us. We connect with God on the basis of what Jesus has done for us. We can know God, the truth about him, because of Jesus. We are who we are because of what Jesus Christ has done. And so we can walk in victory. We're not defeated. Even when we sin, that doesn't defeat us because of what Jesus has done. So, if you sin, when you sin, make your first move a turnaround. Repent. Change your mind. Change your thought. Change your behavior. Change whatever situation you are in. Turn around. Come back to God. Draw near to him. He will draw near to you. And then resist. And believe. Believe who God says that he is, the truth about God. Believe God's words about who you are. And then walk in grace. We've come to the end now. And what I would like for us to do is spend about a minute. I think we can handle that. A minute, maybe a couple minutes in prayer. And what I would love for us to do is in this moment right now, draw near to God. 
And what drawing near to him might mean is that even today, right now, you just need to, you need to turn around. You need to turn back to God. Talk to him about that. Maybe it's to confess sin and just say, Jesus, I've done wrong. I haven't confessed this to you yet. Please forgive me. Receive his forgiveness. Maybe drawing near to God for you right now means that you just thank him, pour out the gratitude of your heart for what he's done for you. But in these moments, talk with God. Draw near to him. Ask him what he's been saying to you, particularly you, this morning. Let's spend a few moments in quiet prayer and then I'll close our time together. So let's draw near to God now. Draw near to God in prayer. Let's pray together. Father, we just praise you and we worship you. We thank you for your kindness to us. You are such a kind God. You're so good to us. Thank you for being a merciful God. Thank you that you are slow to anger, abounding in love. Thank you that you are a compassionate God towards us. Thank you that you are a just God and you advocate and fight on our behalf. Thank you that you are for us, you are not against us. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your grace that we experience in forgiveness of our sin. Thank you that you don't connect with us on what we have done or what we haven't done, but your unmerited, our unmerited acceptance of you is wonderful. God, thank you for who you are. Thank you for your son, Jesus. Jesus, we worship you. We know you're at God's right hand, ruling and reigning with him. Thank you for the victory that you accomplished for us. And thank you that still today you are defeating the works of Satan here on earth. Thank you. And God, we ask that by your Holy Spirit, you help us to resist temptation, that we would find victory over sin that's been, we've been struggling with, that we're wrestling with, that we encounter. Help us to have victory over that. Help us to destroy Satan's work in our lives. God, make us a church so that we take back ground that might belong to Satan. Help us to take back marriages, take back our thought life, take back what has been lost. God, we need your help with that. God, thank you that we're, we can draw near to you. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for how you counsel us and give us wisdom. And I pray that as we leave this place, Holy Spirit, you would remind us 
all the time the truth about God. You'd remind us the truth of our identity in Christ. Holy Spirit, remind us of that. And when, if we sin, help us to walk back to you, to turn back to you. And now as you go from here, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he cause his face to shine upon you. May he be gracious to you. May he give you his peace. May you go with the assurance that you are loved, that you are saved, that you are redeemed, who you are in Christ. May all that we say and do bring glory and honor to Jesus' name. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. And everybody said, amen. Amen. Now, as always, we have our prayer partners up front here. We'd love to pray with you. God bless you. Have a great week, church. Men, we'll see you March 21st. We'll see you next week.